Well, it is great to see everybody. Allow me to begin by sharing a definition that will build a bridge from our study last week to our study this week. And the definition is for the word authority. And according to Merriam-Webster, here is how it's defined. The power to give orders or make decisions. The power or right to direct or control someone or something. In last week's passage, we learned that the Lord Jesus Christ has absolute authority even in our fallen world. And though Satan does have temporary dominion and our world suffers from demonic influences, our definition of authority helps us. The power or right to direct or control something defines authority. And our passage last week revealed three different aspects of Christ's absolute authority, even in our fallen cosmos, over Satan, over uh, demons, over a fallen and depraved Uh, fallen and depraved human hearts, and even over demon-possessed people. This was a defining and foundational message because the Gospel of Mark will continue to emphasize Christ's absolute authority as we study his ministry and sit under his discipleship together. How will it be emphasized, you ask? Well, we'll see the Lord Jesus Christ exercises his power both in the things that he does and the things that he chooses not to do. Authority is displayed by both the exercise of power and it can also be exercised by withholding it. Some of the most powerful expressions of authority are seen by withholding actions. And we see examples of this when Jesus was betrayed by Judas in Matthew 26 when he was out in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? They, they surrounded him and they, they, they were arresting him and G- the Lord reminded them that he could immediately ask the Father to send 12 legions of angels to rescue him. But he permitted his betrayal to happen so that the scripture could be fulfilled. That was an exercise of his power. Another example is Christ standing before Pilate in John 19 when Pilate asked Jesus, Do you know that I do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. And I share these examples because oftentimes we have the opportunity to put God's power on display by the things that we don't do according to his will and the decisions that we make. Likewise, there are spirit-led decisions that also allow us to put his power on display. The suffering servant leads by example in both regards. The title of our message is Our Savior's Power on Display. And follow along as I read Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 39, which will serve as our study today. Starting in verse 29, it's this. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. 
and the whole city gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. He said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. This passage reveals four displays of the Savior's power that should challenge us to rely on it completely. It's been my experience and observation that it's all too common in my life and in observations that I've made in lives of other believers that by default we oftentimes tend to trust in our own power instead of relying completely on Christ's power. In times of prosperity, it's very easy for us to dismiss his power behind our successes. In times of adversity, we can be tempted to even take control in our own strength. And then once we realize that we cannot do it without the Lord's help, only then do we appeal to his power and might rather than relying on it from the beginning. Is there a pattern in your life of doing things in your own strength? If so, be encouraged because our passage should challenge each of our hearts to rely on his power completely. And the first display of Christ's power is seen in verses 29 through 31, which reveals Christ's power over physical illness. Here we'll see the fever that strikes and then the favor that restores. First, the fever that strikes. Look at verses 29 and 30. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 38, provides an account of just one day in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to take notice of how busy and how full this day was. For Christ and only his four disciples at this point. After preaching and casting out the demon in the synagogue, which we got a chance to study last week, Jesus and his disciples go to Peter's house, which apparently was only a stone's throw away from the synagogue. And verse 30 reveals that Simon's Peter mother-in-law was sick with a fever. And in the Greek, it's literally saying that she was lying prostrate, burning, that was the description, burning with fever. And in the parallel account in Luke 4.38, the physician Luke records that it was a high fever. And important to note medically here is just like today, high fevers can accompany a variety of different illnesses and infections. The big difference, however, is that unlike today, there was a much more limited understanding as to their causes. So the treatment options were very limited and much less precise. There wasn't the vast array of antibiotics. You couldn't just go down to the local CVS or Walgreens because it didn't exist. And sadly, most illnesses then that would be treatable today oftentimes ended in death rather than in recovery. So a high fever may not seem that alarming to us as we read about it in the passage, 
But during this time period, this was, this was a big deal. And this is why we see the response that we do at the end of verse 30. It says, immediately the disciples spoke to Jesus about her. One commentator shared, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they told Jesus about her. Instead of a delicious hot Sabbath feast, they found a sick cook. This is no way to return from church, especially if you are the preacher. I thought that was funny. Apparently I'm alone on that one. <laughs> in, in the end, their immediate concern was her well-being. It wasn't food. And this opens up the opportunity for the Lord's favor to restore her. And verse 31 says, And he, Jesus, came to her, raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. The priority of Mark's account here in the gospel isn't on, uh, on her physical illness, but instead he, he emphasizes the all-sufficiency of Jesus as the healer and his power over the physical illness. Our Savior, Savior heals her instantly. And by the time he takes her hand to help her up, her fever is gone. Luke says in the parallel account that he stood over her and rebuked the fever in Luke 4.39. In Matthew 8.15, it says he touched her. And here in Mark, we read that he took her by the hand. So there's this collective effort that we can uh, see through the synoptic gospel accounts that provide a composite picture of Christ standing close to her bed, taking her by the hand, rebuking the fever, and gently raising her up before Peter and his wide-eyed friends. One commentator shared this insight. The point is, Jesus could have healed her any way he pleased. The Gospels reveal that at times he did miracles with a simple word, or with something as complicated as clay made with spittle and the instruction to wash in Siloam. He could, have, he could do them any way he wished, the reasons for the different ways in which he healed rested in the mental and moral condition of the people themselves and what he wanted to communicate. Here, his reaching down and taking a dear woman by the hand was simply a natural, instinctive action springing from Jesus' sympathetic love. Later, Jesus did virtually the same thing with a leper down in verse 41 of the same chapter, something unheard of during his time. What a powerful insight. Yes, he wanted to demonstrate his power, and especially over the physical illness, and that's unmistakable. Yet Jesus' touch tells us volumes about who he is, about what he was like, and his compassion, and his mercy, and his grace for those who were suffering. And what was the result of his healing touch? Look at the end of verse 31. The fever left her, and she waited on him, waited on them. She felt so good that literally she was able to, to get up and to serve them. It's the Greek word diakoneo, and it's actually the same word that we derive the word deacon from. Fitting to mention that on our day of nominations. I like what another commentator said about the episode. This is the tell telltale sign of everyone who has truly received the healing touch of Christ. Our response to him should be like that of the talkative woman who received Christ under Charles Spurgeon's ministry and said, Oh, Mr. Spurgeon, Christ has changed my life, and he shall never hear the end of it. <laughs> end quote. A heart of service flowed out of Peter's mother-in-law, and a heart of gratitude and praise ignited within the woman who got saved under Spurgeon's day. Christ's power produces both in the life of a believer. And some might ask, and it's a fair question at this point, 
if that's the response that Christ received, then why doesn't the Lord Jesus Christ just go ahead and heal everyone? Why doesn't he just go ahead and do that? It's exactly about, that's what's about to occur as we progress in our passage. And it's a good transition to our second point, display number two. Christ's power over all ailments. In verses 32 and 33, we see that a crowd shows up bringing all their ailments to Jesus. And let's read the account starting in verse 32. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. First, you may notice that they came in the evening. And you'll recall that it was the Sabbath. So anyone who was sick or couldn't walk wouldn't be allowed to be carried. If somebody was paralyzed or uh, vitally ill, they wouldn't be able to carry them until the sun was set. And there were even restrictions. I've mentioned this before about how far they could walk on the Sabbath. And again, it wasn't necessarily a legalistic thing. It was just to emphasize the fact that it was supposed to be a day of rest. The law said the Sabbath ended when three stars came out in the night sky. They also knew that Jesus was Jewish because he had been teaching in the synagogue. So they knew that he would be honoring the Sabbath. And so they wait until evening before they come to see him. Like in most small towns, it didn't take long for the news to travel uh, about what had happened very quickly. I grew up in a small little rural town in Illinois, about 3,000 people. No internet at the time, no text message or emails or social networks to post things. And it was amazing when anything big ever happened, good or bad, how quickly the news just traveled through the town. It was like, it was lightning speed. I think it was faster than anything technology could even offer today. It was just instant. Everybody knew about it. Well, this is exactly the case in Capernaum. And we're told that everyone who had an illness or who was demon-possessed, as they heard the news about the demon-possessed man, who was probably known because of his maybe violence, aggression, or the wicked things that he was led to do while being demon-possessed had been healed earlier. Everyone came to be healed by Jesus. So what would he do? Here's an early question for application. What would you do if that many people showed up at your house, outside your door in the evening to be ministered to? It's true that sometimes ministry needs don't come at the most convenient times in our lives, right? They, they involve sacrifice. Well, our suffering servant, our Savior, healed them all. He exercised his power and healed every single one of them. Look at verse 34. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. It says he healed many, and it is the Greek verb therapuo, from where we get our word therapeutic. And in this instance, it means healed, cured, completely restored. The word many is describing the variety of different illnesses. And the Greek word translated ill in our passage can also mean sick, diseased, or injured. In the parallel account in Matthew 8:16, it says that Jesus healed all who were ill, all who were ill and who had showed up. Okay? 
And this makes sense if Christ is trying to establish his authority. Right? If, if he would only heal some and not others, or if he would cast out some demons and not cast out others, that might call some to question the Lord's absolute authority and power. And by the way, this wasn't just some massive group healing. In Luke's account, it shares that he, he ministered to them, laying hands on each one of them. It, this was personal. This was the Lord ministering exhaustively. It wasn't like everybody showed up um, at a Benny Hinn event and, and um, a, a mass uh, mass thing of, of healing occurred. This was the Lord Jesus Christ ministering to, to people. What a wonderful evening and display of Christ's power. The demons were fleeing from his presence. People who had been demon-possessed were being liberated. The crippled were walking and those about to die from a deadly disease were given a lease on new life. Crutches and canes were thrown to the wayside. Could you imagine the joy that was taking place? I think an equivalence would be thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ showing up at Kaiser Kramer at the hospital off the 91 freeway and healing every single patient that, that was sick. There, would there not be tremendous joy? Tremendous, tremendous joy. We can be certain that the onlookers we're in a state of frenzied joy. The sounds carried far out over the waters of the Sea of Galilee as the people celebrated. Yet, here is a sobering perspective offered by a commentator that we need to see. As marvelous as it was, we should not be naive about what was going on here. Most of the people who came simply wanted something from Jesus. There is a reasonable sense in which we cannot blame them. Anyone who has an ongoing disability or disease can certainly sympathize with them. At the same time, they tragically foreshadowed millions of people across the centuries who only wanted Christ for what they hoped to receive from him. Jesus addressed those with this motive after he fed the 5,000 saying, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me because you ate the loaves and had your fill in John six twenty six. They cared little about the spiritual implications of Jesus' miracles and teaching, but much about the material and the temporal. That is the way it was in Capernaum, end quote. Well, this same mindset potentially threatens us as a believer today in our Christian culture. We can turn to Christ, right? And we can turn to his power to see what can he do for us? How, how can he make my life more convenient? How can he serve my coveting nature? How can he provide more convenience? We may want higher education so that we can be esteemed by others, we may want a job promotion because our hearts could be deceptively motivated and impacted by materialism or maybe even by personal recognition. We may just want to one-up the Joneses or maybe we want to just get ahead of our buddy who's serving and working in the next cubicle next to us. We may not be relying completely on Christ's power for the sake of his kingdom, but for the sake of our own. 
His power enables us to fulfill his purposes and his ministry objectives for our lives. And we must keep Christ's power in proper perspective if we plan to rely completely on it. How do we do this? Is there a practical way to weed out false motives and the deceptive nature of our hearts? How do we rely, not just in part, but in whole, entirely on Christ's power? Answers to these questions will be revealed in our final two displays of Christ's power. Our passage reveals four displays of the Savior's power that should challenge us to rely completely on it. Display number one revealed Christ's power over physical illness. Display number two revealed Christ's power over all ailments. And display number three reveals Christ's power fueled by prayer. Look at verse 35. It says, In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. This single verse may say more about Christ's power than all the other verses. In his humanity, Jesus models for us what it means to be spirit-led. And here Christ prioritizes his time to pray and commune with the Father. The expression, in the early morning, refers to the last watch of the night from 3 to 6 a.m. So it was definitely still dark. Keep in mind that the Lord just got done doing what the night before? The whole city had showed up at his door, right? He was ministering to them. He was individually going to them to, to, to heal them of all the things that were taking place in, in their lives. And then the very next morning comes and he arises early and he goes to pray and commune with the Father. Amazing. And there's no question in his humanity that there was fatigue. And I think any of my moms in the room can relate to this as it relates to the kids that are always tugging at your pant leg and tugging at the apron, saying, I'm hungry, I need this, I need that. It's, 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 it's draining, right? It takes energy. How did the Lord Jesus Christ get recharged? Mark records Jesus praying three times in his gospel account. Here in Mark 135, then following the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark 646, and a third time in Gethsemane in Mark 14. And all three occur at night and in solitary places. And none of the gospel accounts indicate what our Lord is praying for specifically. And it could have been for any number of things. Maybe he was praying that the people would show up with pure motives to receive what he had to say. Here in Mark 1, we already see people coming for the sake of healing. But were they coming to trust completely in the healer himself. The same is true after the feeding of the 5,000 when Jesus shares that they're only seeking him so that they could have their fill of physical food. Again, the Lord slips away right afterwards to pray. Praying. I'm, I'm certain praying for them, that, they, that, that it wouldn't just be the physical bread and the physical things that they received, but that his spiritual words of eternal life would not fall on deaf ears, that they would hear it and receive him as their Messiah. One theologian describes prayer as time exposure to God. He used the analogy of his life 
being like a photographic plate, which, when exposed to God, progressively bore the image of God in keeping with the length of the exposure. Jesus exposed his humanity to God the Father. And even though he needed no more of the fullness of God, we know this from Colossians 2, 8 and 9, for in him dwells uh, the fullness of deity and bodily form. We know that in Hebrews 1, 3, it says that he's the exact representation of God's nature. Jesus was wonderfully refreshed as his light was exposed to the Father's light, his purity to the Father's purity and holiness in contrast to the broken world around him. There was no such brokenness in the heavenly realm, only holy perfection. And so the Lord's fellowship with the Father in prayer is sweet and intimate. But there was also a human reason for Jesus' prayer. For we must remember that though Jesus was God, he did not live his life as God apart from the Father, but rather as a man in dependence upon God. Prayer exposed his will to the Father's will. And we see this as, as he prayed, right? We see this as he ached and, and, and even pleaded with the Father. Not his will be done, but your will be done. There was this appeal that aligned his will that took place through prayer. What an example for us to follow as the Lord's disciples being led by the Spirit's power in prayer as we reflect on the Father's will for our lives. How did the Lord do it? How did he do it? He got up early and he made it a priority. He, he made time. He knew that the days are filled with distractions and other things that were going to demand his attention. He went away to a secluded place. He minimized all distractions. In fact, Mark uses the same Greek word that's translated wilderness earlier in the chapter for the secluded place. Jesus went out and was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And I, we shared this when we talked about what was out in the wilderness. Absolutely nothing except he and Satan one-on-one. -on -one. And in this account, what's out in the wilderness Absolutely nothing except Jesus being led by the Holy Spirit out there to have communion with his Father one-on-one. -on -one. No cell phone, no pager, just in case there's an emergency. Right? Jesus didn't have one on his hip. You know, listen, let me just say this. If, if you're praying and, and God should ordain an emergency while you're praying, you're already doing what you need to be doing. Amen? In order to, to deal with the emergency? Prayer functions as a filter to remove false motives and helps us to rely completely on Christ's power as well. As the Holy Spirit intercedes during our time of prayer, he helps us to reflect upon and examine our heart motives. One of the more specific ways is by having us reflect on the Father's will, which helps to instill a ministry mindset rather than a self-serving agenda. When you pray about pursuing that second degree, okay, when you're going to go back and get your master's degree, it's, it's not so that you get esteemed by others. It's praying and, and God, how can I use this for your glory? How can I use this to serve and accomplish your purposes? 
When you pray about a new job or promotion at work, it should make you mindful of how the Lord will use it to expand your ministry and enhance your capacity to grow spiritually, not hinder it. When you pray for a spouse to marry, it should make you mindful of how the Lord will use you to disciple or be discipled in your service to another person and how that you're able to team up with somebody so that you can give God more glory as you serve together. Not prompted by potential idols of the heart. Prayer is like a water filtration system that removes both the seen and unseen impurities from within and helps us clearly see and discern the Father's will. It also empowers us to serve and minister in the Lord's strength. In a verse that we've mentioned before, 1 Peter 4.11, whoever serves is to serve in the strength which he supplies, right? And to do divine work, it takes divine enablement and power. And prayer keeps us connected to the power source. And just like your cell phone, it needs to be regularly charged in order to maintain power spiritually. Prayer recharges us and empowers us by God's design. And the Holy Spirit dwells within, just like your cell phone. The battery's already inside. It's, it already has what it needs, right? But the connection to the power source is what keeps it charged. And there are many examples and testimonies of faithful men and women who testify to the power of prayer. Listen to some of the following quotes. Don't only pray when you feel like it. Have an appointment with the Lord and keep it. A man is powerful on his knees. Corey Ten Boom. The power of prayer has never been tried to its full capacity. If we want to see mighty wonders of divine power and grace wrought in the place of weakness, failure, and disappointment, let us answer God's standing challenge. Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Hudson Taylor. Our prayer must not be self-centered, and it must arise not only because we feel our own need as a burden we must lay upon God, but also because we are so bound up in love for our fellow man that we feel their need as acutely as our own. To make intercession for men is the most powerful and practical way in which we can express our love for them. John Calvin. What shall we say to those who pray, yet give a little time to their prayers. Give little time to their prayers. We are obliged to say that they show at present very little of the mind of Christ. Asking little, they must expect to have little. Seeking little, they cannot be surprised if they possess little. It will always be found that when prayers are few, grace, strength, peace, and hope are small. J.C. Ryle. One prayerful woman shared, time spent alone with God is not wasted. It changes us. It changes our surroundings. And every Christian who would live the life that counts and who would have the power for service must take time to pray. The freight and passenger trains are never too busy to stop for fuel. No matter how congested the yards may be, no matter how crowded the schedules, no matter how many things demand the attention of the trainmen, those trains always stop for fuel. Prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Oswald Chambers. There are plenty of things in our lives 
that try to interfere and interrupt our prayer time. Are there not? There are. And the application couldn't be any more straightforward for us. Find your time to pray. Find your place to pray. So that you, my friend, can, can rely completely on Christ's power in your life. Well, this might encourage you, as I know it did me when I studied this passage. Even the Lord was interrupted when he was trying to pray. Look at the following verses after verse 35. Jesus got up, left the house, went away to a secluded place and was praying there. And notice who shows up to interrupt his prayer time. None other than Simon Peter. Verse 36 says, Simon and his companions searched for him and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. The phrase everyone is looking for you is deceptive in our English translation. Some might even be tempted to think that this is a good thing. They're, They're looking for Jesus. In the Greek, this word translated looking for occurs 10 times in Mark's gospel, and every single time it's in a negative connotation. The first two occurrences refer to the interference of Jesus and the obstruction of his ministry here in Mark 1.32 and again in Mark 3.32. And then the next two occurrences come in Mark chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, and and they, they show faithlessness. And the remaining occurrences refer to attempts to kill Jesus. Remember, we hear that, right? They were seeking to kill him all the more, right? That's the exact phrase that they they were using. Seeking Jesus connotes an attempt to determine and control rather than to submit and follow. In this respect, seeking for Jesus is not a virtue in the Gospel of Mark, nor are clamoring crowds a sign of success or aid to ministry. Here as elsewhere in Mark, enthusiasm is not to be confused with faith. Indeed, it can oppose faith. And we see this play out in the Gospels when they were plotting to take Jesus and to make him their king. Some commentators even speculate that Peter and the disciples were only coming to find Jesus to ride the wave of his growing popularity for their own agenda and benefit. Well, having just spent time with his father and prayerfully reflecting on his mission, Jesus humbly responds to them by revealing the fourth and final display of his power. In our final two verses, we see Christ's power purposed in preaching. Here we have the Lord's petition to preach elsewhere, followed by the Lord's power proclaimed throughout Galilee. Verse 38 It says this, he said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. Jesus had no desire to build a fan base or to have an entourage. He was looking for people who were going to be true followers, true disciples, not fans of his miracles or healings. He knew the deceptive nature of the human heart. And continuing to preach the gospel and directing people to himself was the primary mission for which he came. 
Instead of feeding the miracle-inspired popularity, he proposed a preaching tour elsewhere, and he uses a plural form of the verb, let's go. And so this is an open invitation to his disciples to join him in his gospel proclamation ministry And as he continues. Jesus was eager to continue his primary mission of preaching, heralding the good news of the kingdom. In the Greek, the words there also are in the emphatic position featuring the fact that these, are, that these other places too must hear his message. And Christ's preaching was central to his ministry. And it was the very thing that released his powers. The miracles, all they simply did was authenticate the reality of his message. And I know in our verse it looks like th- that there are two things that are, are are happening. Well, we, we're going to get to verse 39 in a minute. minute. Um, Jesus didn't want preoccupation with the miracles to obscure his ministry. Well, we looked at the Lord's power, uh, excuse me, we, we, we looked at the, uh, the, the, the Lord's petition to preach elsewhere. And now let's look at the Lord's how the Lord's power was proclaimed throughout Galilee. Verse 39 states, And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. Christ's power was purposed in his preaching. And as we learned last week, his preaching exposed demons to the light and the authority and the reality of his teaching, so much so that they scattered. Even when they were, were possessing somebody, a human, it caused them to shriek. And to leave his presence. And I mentioned this or alluded to it just moments ago. That though it looked like there's two things that are happening here. That he was preaching and casting out demons. The reality of what is taking place is that Christ's preaching is the prime action. And demons being cast out is just a byproduct of his authority. And power being released through his message. Jesus' work always brought him into victorious conflict with these evil powers and demonstrated that the establishment of the kingdom of God meant the overthrow of the kingdom of Satan. Well, how does this apply to us today? How can we consider just even the reality? Because not everybody in the room, I don't believe, is called to, to be a preacher on Sunday, right? Some of you guys are, though. Imagine. But every single one of us is what? Called to preach the gospel. We're called to take the message of the gospel and to preach it. I love John MacArthur's response when asked, How is preaching different than teaching? He says, It's louder. And there are some instances where the world is turned up so loud in someone's life that it does require for us to be bold. It does require us to be strong. It does require us to be clear in our gospel proclamation so that they know, that they know, that they know who has the authority and who has the power and who can save them from their pathetic life. And I can say, pathetic life because I can look back on my own life and realize just how pathetic my earthly pursuits were. And he redeems us. And he gives us a chance to live for his kingdom and his purposes and to invest in something that gives us a more than a 100% return on our investment for all you financial guys. It's exponentially greater 
And yes, as we preach the gospel to people, they need to see our genuine love and concern for their souls. But just like our Savior, they also need to see your conviction and your commitment and clear proclamation of the truth. For that is where the power lives. Our faithfulness in preaching the gospel also serves as a reminder to ourselves as we deliver the message of repentance and faith to them as well. That we continue to preach the gospel to our own hearts as we rely on Christ's power completely to transform our lives. And, and, and you know what? There's a safety net in us preaching the gospel to other people and calling people to faith and repentance. Why? Because um, when you're out there sharing that message... And you're saying, you need to do this, and God would have you do this. God would have you turn from your sin, and you're not turning from your sin? There's a word, that, there's a word for that. We all know what it is. That H word. Hypocrisy. And how, how do we guard our hearts from, from hypocrisy? How do we guard our hearts from those false motives creeping into our lives? We preach the gospel. And it's true, we preach it to our own hearts and then we preach it to those who need to hear about the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. The power of the Lord Jesus Christ was purposed in his preaching. And you think about it, the Lord could have done any number of things when he showed up and, and how he ministered to people. But what was the primary thing that he did when he was out ministering to people? preached the gospel. He preached the gospel. Well, as we close our time, I wanted to share that it isn't too often that we come across one passage that highlights nearly all the ministry pillars of our church. I praise God for the fellowship that we have at Cornerstone, that our ministries are purposed in exalting Christ as we depend completely on his power to be a praying, preaching, progressing ministry. I praise God for it. And I know you do too. May we all take some time this week to reflect on these ministry pillars and ask the Lord to challenge our hearts if there's any way within us that doesn't trust completely in his power as it relates to fulfilling them. Let's do that. Let's do that. I love having the philosophy of ministry of our church right here before our eyes every week. And we can lay those. It's good. It's spiritually healthy to lay those over our heart and to ask that question, do I believe? Do I trust? Am I committed? His power will show up in great measure. Please pray with me.